This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives of lesser-known Victorian writers. And I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. Hey guys, I'm back with Eleanor Dumbbell to talk about some of Mary Elizabeth Braddon's short fiction and read it to you this week. And so, like last time, we're going to start with a little discussion of Braddon's writing process and then move into the fiction. So, there's less readily available information about Braddon's writing process online. I was able to find an article titled Miss Braddon at Home from August 6th, 1887, in the Cardiff Times and South Wales Weekly News. And this is a journalist visiting her home to write about her writing space and writing process and interview her and uh, Max. Miss Braddon at Home Describing an interview with Miss Braddon, whose serial story, Like and Unlike, is now appearing in our columns, Mr. Joseph Hatton says, a pleasant, matron-like woman, Miss Braddon, Mrs. John Maxwell, above the medium height, fair with a complexion that suggests more of horse exercise in the open air generally than pens and ink and hard work in a library. Her eyes are small and look a trifle tried, that's a typo, tired, her mouth large and characteristic, firm lips, a strong chin. Uh, so this is where that description we found from last week is coming from, I guess. I think it could be tried because it's kind of a semi-archaic term to mean bothered. So if you find someone trying, you find them irritating. Oh yeah, you're right. So she's she's looking at him with annoyance. <laughs> Probably because he's going around saying her eyes are small. And calling her matronly. Yeah. <laughs> The expression of her, of her face suggests an amiable temperament and a kindly nature, and like all authors who are at work on an engrossing book, there is in her eyes an occasional vacancy of expression, which means that their owner for a moment is thinking of her work, taxed unexpectedly with a sudden idea, or worried with one of the vagaries of one of the fictitious characters she has created and cannot altogether control. Miss Braddon's husband is hale, hearty, breezy, in spite of his 60 years. I don't know why we need to know that, but okay. A keen businessman, newspaper proprietor, publisher, printer, he has been everything in connection with the journalistic history of Fleet Street, had a hand in starting the Standard, and was for years the proprietor of the Belgravia magazine. He is known as well for his business hospitality as for his smart, clever business operations. Um, so just a little aside here, um, you probably know Fleet Street because of, of Sweeney Todd, but it was uh, well known for, uh, as a literary area, a place where the newspapers and magazine proprietors kind of uh, collected, gathered. My words are evading me this morning. Um, so they were sort of heavily based there, from what I understand. Yeah, it's quite a common referent for newspapers in the UK. So it's on our Monopoly boards and it's associated with the newspapers still, even though most of them are in a similar area, but not actually on Fleet Street now. Oh, I love that. It's on the Monopoly boards. <laughs> so throughout this interview, Maxwell plays an interestingly prevalent role, even though it's 
titled Miss Brennan at Home. Um, so Maxwell says, welcome, glad to see you. And then the journalist continues, we sit down to talk over the events of the day until I turn his thoughts into the channel that is most useful for this article. It is a noble room in which we are seated, the drawing room, with its three great bay windows. But I have omitted to say what I may set down very appropriately in this place, that Miss Braddon, her husband, and family live in Litchfield House, Richmond, and that it is here where I am received as an old friend. In the breakfast room, among other curiosities, is the light the little table used by the Duke of Wellington during the Peninsular War, and on which he wrote the dispatch that recounted the victory at Waterloo. It is a curious table, so constructed that it is either a depatch box, card table, a chess table, a dining table, or a writing desk. I really want that table. It sounds useful. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to imagine this table. I don't know how it would... How do you get a dispatch box, a card table, a chess table, a dining table, and a writing desk all into one? It must have a lot of hinges, so you can just... Um, yeah. Or else it's really a basic little table that is just so basic you can use it for anything. Yeah, it's more to do with how she's using it than the actual table. I bet there's a picture of it online somewhere. Yeah, we'll have to dig around and see if we can add it to the show notes. If it's a famous table. Right, if it was the Duke of Wellington's table, I bet there are some auction house pictures of it somewhere. Surely. Okay. So, the journalist continues, He directed my attention to a magnificent bookcase of English marquetra work. Opening it, there was displayed a collection of large volumes handsomely bound in red morocco. The Braddon novels, my host exclaimed, with undisguised pride. The original manuscripts. It might be said one day that no one pen could have written so much and so well. Here is the answer. Show me the manuscript of Lady Audley's Secret, I said. The only one I do not possess. It was burnt in a fire at the publisher's office. So fire strikes once again. Oh, that's devastating. I was thinking that. What's with all the fire? People, keep your papers away from fires. Right? Don't they have fireproof boxes? And the truth is, said the author who joined us at this moment, Max did not think so much of my manuscripts in those days. I'm sure it never occurred to me to take the trouble of preserving them, and luncheon is ready. <laughs> so dramatic entrance, and characteristically for Braddon, food is a priority. She really has her priorities right. Yes, yeah, she does. I, I love her more and more. <laughs> <laughs> some weird combination of professionalism being like oh this is what happened with my manuscripts it never occurred to me to take the trouble of preserving them and then she's like by the way lunch is ready <laughs> those things are equivalent somehow i want to know whether she made the lunch i'm presuming she has a maid who did but how much is that her professionalism but then also doing the woman's work right because max is clearly like entertaining or giving the tour <laughs> yes after lunch the journalist writes, We ascended to the first floor, my hostess and myself, traversing an old wainscoted staircase and landing, and sitting down in a large square room with an outlook upon a long, trim, George I garden. This is my workshop, she says. The usual sort of thing, I suppose. Lots of books of reference, a somewhat disordered desk. This block of shelves is full of French works. I bought, by the way, almost the whole of Tom Taylor's French library. Here is an American edition of Dickens, with the green covers of the original monthly parts of Pickwick. Here are Scott, George Eliot, Lamb, Steele, a host of old comedies, the customary dictionaries, and so on. Her library sounds amazing. 
already, even this glimpse of it. I love her casual name dropping. Right. By the way, <laughs> I bought some Taylor's French Library. That's like double duty too, because she's reading it in the French. Yeah, it's the double of, by the way, I can read French well enough to have a whole French library, and also I bought it from Tom Taylor. Yep. <laughs> These are my commonplace books, says my hostess, taking from a shelf one of several small volumes. I don't do anything in this way as systematically as our friend Sala, nor on the elaborate plan of poor Charles Reed. Do you know why he's poor at this moment? I do not know enough about Charles Reed to know why he's poor then. I know about hard cash and then that's about it with Reed. Hmm. Maybe that's another thing we can do some digging on for the show notes. Um, so I wanted to also explain what commonplace books are here for people who have never heard that term. Um, it's kind of like a scrapbook where people would collect quotes and poetry and like newspaper articles um, often as a daily practice. Do you have any experience with these, Eleanor, or anything you would like to add? I think that was a good explanation. It's kind of like journaling. Okay, yeah. Or like, it's kind of like Pinterest, except in book form. <laughs> or Instagram, maybe. Yeah, that's a really good example. Like, if your Instagram is full of inspirational quotes. I think people probably still have commonplace books and don't even realise it. I went travelling recently and kept all my tickets and put them in a book, so essentially I have a commonplace book. Yeah, they're really cool, and, and it's interesting to think about what inspired or um, seemed important enough to collect to people who kept them. And there are, like, if you visit uh, many of the special collections I've visited in U.S., um, libraries have are full of commonplace books because it's not just famous people who are keeping them, but basically, like, everyone was. And so it's a really uh, fascinating glimpse into a 19th century um, cultural mindset, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting for that. Um, so Braddon takes one down and hands the journalist a volume. He says, it was full of carefully written extracts from books and newspapers. Now tell me, I say, as I sat down by the fire, something about your working day. My idea of a perfect and pleasant day, she says, is to devote the whole of it to writing and reading. When I say the whole of it, I mean from breakfast at 10 until dinner at 7, with intervals of strong tea and sometimes a little luncheon. I can do this four days during the week, and I enjoy it and get through a lot of work, if I have the other two for writing, and more especially for hunting. This woman. I love that she measures out her day by mealtimes. <laughs> yes. I was also thinking, like, as a PhD student, I can sustain hard work for about four days out of the week, and then, like, I have to take a day off to just watch Netflix or something. Um, so I really... Yeah, I think my routine's probably pretty close to Braddon's in that, actually. And it's funny that she uh, she measures out her week in six days. I mean, I'm presuming because you're not supposed to work on Sunday, although I'm not sure that she was that religious, but... Yeah, that really threw me at first. I don't spend the other two riding and hunting, though. No. <laughs> Hiking, maybe. For me. Yeah, riding a bike. Yes. Not quite as fancy. Um, so then the uh, journalist is curious to know about her reading habits. He asks, who are your favorite authors, as the new inquisitorial autograph books put it? Well, I must confess that I have read very few of my contemporary novelists. I think I have read more French stories than English. I have read and am fond of George Eliot, Rhoda Broughton, Wilkie Collins, of course, and I know my Thackeray, my Dickens, and my Scott. I always say that I owe Lady Audley's secret to the woman in white. Which, uh, if you didn't say that, you'd be lying. 
<laughs> it's there's an obvious connection there so at least she admits it um and she says wilkie collins is assuredly my literary father they're not that different in age are they no and like lady oddly secret comes out two years after the woman in white so it's not even as if <laughs> uh, yeah i think calling them the the king and queen of sensation fiction puts their relationship in a, in a clearer light so they're more i would say equals than than a parent child kind of literary situation yeah right she could have said he's my literary big brother you don't have to go straight to father braddon yeah so I think the Victorians kind of had, like, a daddy complex, though, because, like, I mean, similarly to uh, Hollywood right now, most of the romances are very young women matching up with very old men, and so, I don't know. Yeah, and it always goes completely unremarked when an 18-year-old runs off with a 40-year-old, and you're just like, yeah, that's normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not even, like, necessarily her um, patronizing him here. Yeah. To cast him as a literary father. <laughs> uh, so Braddon continues, My admiration for The Woman in White inspired me with the idea of Lady Audley as a novel of construction and character. Previously, my efforts had been in the didactic direction of Bulwer, long conversations, a great deal of sentiment. You know what I mean. I suppose every young writer starts with an ideal author. Bulwer was mine, and the late Lord Lytton took great interest in my work. He undertook to correct and criticize my first story, and both he and his son, the present Lord Lytton, have written me very many charming and valuable letters. The late Earl wrote me long criticisms of almost every book I wrote, and mere, not mere complimentary letters, but fault-finding letters, pointing out where he thought I was wrong, and being very generous, of course, touching what he thought were good points in my work. I dedicated Lady Audley to him. Uh... Sorry, I just really don't like Bull Willitton. That's my input. I I haven't ever haven't ever read much of his stuff that I recall. If I have, I've repressed it. Yeah, I'm strongly team Rosina Bull Willitton, his wife, who he was horrible to. But this is serious name dropping on her part still too. Oh yeah. And I find it really interesting that sorry, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. But that she goes on to, right after she's been saying how much she likes Bull Willis, and she goes on to, again, say how much she likes Charles Reed. And Reed was also strongly Team Rosina. So, interesting. Mm, interesting, yeah. Well, and also, like, it sounds almost as if Lytton was, uh, a, like, a mansplaining how to write to her <laughs> through years and years. Yeah, I would love to see if those fault-finding letters are still in an archive somewhere. Yeah, and if she, um, like, just, uh, like, read them and shrugged them off, or if she actually used them. Yeah. So, um, she, she says, He was the first author of note to give me any real encouragement. I think I have no hesitation in saying that, all round, Dickens has given me more pleasure than any other writer. Charles Reed I admire greatly, both as a man and an author. I think he was one of the most powerful of our English writers, and what a world of tenderness of thought he brought into his work. So she's using the past tense, which makes me think poor Charles Reed is because he had recently passed away, maybe? Yeah, I was thinking exactly the same thing. It must be. Okay. We're just going to look that up really fast. It's going to bother me. Yeah. <laughs> we know what we're doing. Google is our friend. Um, he died in 1884. Mm. So he'd been... Three years? Yeah. 
So then the journalist continues, I see you have Nana among your French books. What do you think of Zola? That he is very clever, not immoral as some people think, but that he is horrible and maudlin and his new departure of so-called realism. It cannot be regarded as immoral when the vices of humanity are exposed in their most revolting details. Neither is it art, I think, and it certainly is most unpleasant reading. It's a very mixed review. Yeah. Well, I think it's really telling that, um, so there's this real trend among authors, especially at the end of the century, to think too much realism is not art, and I think this is related to the rise of, um, popular photography. So there's this huge debate in the period about whether photography is science or art, because it, it basically seems to just capture reality. And then um, there were some people who said it's only artistic if it's like blurry or some other thing is dimming the realism and like taking a step away from the real world. And it's sort of similar thinking here that if it's too real, it's not art. It's still possibly important and useful, but it's not art. Yes, yeah. I think the thing with realism is kind of what she points out, which she says it's most unpleasant reading, because if you're reading as an escape and then you end up reading something where people are having horrible lives, and you're just like, mm, maybe this isn't what I want to escape my not very pleasant life with. Mm-hmm. So then the journalist says, now tell us something about your method of storytelling. Very well then, she said, clasping her hands and looking into the fire. I am not as systematic as Mrs. Wood nor can I write exactly to measure as Trollope did. Do you know what she means by that? So my inspiration was, which Trollope? <laughs> yeah, Anthony Trollope was really strict about his writing. I'm pretty sure he would have targets of, I'm going to write so many pages a day or for so many hours a day. He has a real reputation for getting up in the middle of the night to start writing. Hmm. And his mother actually is the same. Obviously it works for them and they're very rigid about what they write and when they write. Oh, wow. I feel like George Eliot was also like that because I... I took a class on her, it was one of my last graduate courses, and um, we were talking about how she knew exactly how many how many lines and what size of handwriting it took to fill like a typical page size for her publishers, and she would just um, plan according to that, plan out her novels. Yeah, so, so that sounds like her. I feel like she would... Yeah, very meticulous. Yes. <laughs> And I love that Braddon's completely different. I'm really relating to her being like, potatoes, dinner, measure everything by mealtimes, and also no systematizing. Yeah, she's... Um, modern writers talk about it being like a plotter versus a pantser, like having a plan or just exploring your way through a novel. And it kind of sounds like Braddon would almost fall into the, the pantser uh, <laughs> category. But, um, so she continues... Sometimes, when I get a special order, as I do now and then from the newspapers or a magazine, I find myself literally without an idea in my head. My mind is a blank, quite empty, as one may say. Then, all of a sudden and unexpectedly, an idea comes, the germ of a story. For example, Henry Dunbar. I thought of that story as I was driving into the city one day to meet my husband. Thought of it in the street in a cab but the germ of it had been probably already in my mind, suggested by a police case I had read in the memoirs of a French detective. Have you read Carpenter's Physiology? Well, he explains how the brain works on its own account, how it has a, subtle, a sort of double action and will, as it were, debate and work out the theme while we are unconscious, so to speak, of its operations. I am sure I have had many experiences of the truth of this theory. 
When I have got my germ and it has developed into anything like shape, I make a skeleton plot, describe the characters, note the incidents, and sketch out the general idea. That done, I begin my copy for the printer and work at it straight to the finish. Of course, new developments occur as I go along, changes sometimes of incident and motives, but so long as I adhere to the general plan, I accept these changes and find that the whole scheme works out correctly. But I wrote Lady Oddly's secret without a skeleton plot, without a single note. During a final ramble round the room, we passed in review The Spectator, The Tattler, Chambers' Miscellany, Southey's Commonplace Book, Buckle's Commonplace Book, Beaumont and Fletcher, and Jeremy Taylor. The latter author my hostess pronounced capital reading for style, and I felt constrained to confess that I prefer the more modern style of Macaulay. This is just such a sassy reporter. Like, so contrary. It's just like, Jeremy mm, Taylor's a bit outdated, mate. I prefer Macaulay. <laughs> Had to have the last word. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting that the last sentence of the entire thing is about his own feelings. Yeah. I like her theory of the subconscious mind, though. I don't know about you, but I feel that's how research works. Maybe I have an idea in my mind, but then I'll go and walk the dog, and that's when it will actually come into my head as, oh, this is what I've been trying to articulate. Yeah, absolutely. My cohort was required to do an introduction to graduate studies, even though most of us came in having already done a graduate degree. And um, the, on the one of the first days, our professor or our director of graduate studies told us all, you know, like, you need to give your brain quiet space like breaks from the thinking because actually that's when your brain is doing most of its important work when you're not consciously thinking about it at all it's putting the pieces of the puzzle together for you the only thing i don't like about that is when the idea comes to you and you don't have a pen and you don't have any means of recording the idea and then about half an hour later you're like oh my gosh i know i had a really good idea but i don't know what it was yep (laughs) what does this mean (laughs) yeah Yep, yeah. I have a lot of cryptic notes in my iPhone that like I think will be enough to help me remember it and then I come to it later and I'm like, what was I thinking about? How does this make any sense at all? Um, so that's kind of the snapshot of her writing process from what I could gather. Uh, based on her archives, we also know that she kept working journals where she recorded observations, descriptions, and story ideas, so she was smart and had a pen with her, apparently, and wrote down all of these little germs of ideas to be used later. And I've, um, I think a lot of writers do this. I've, I've heard, uh, like, at conferences and, um, just on social media, a lot of them talk about having this book full of ideas, because the problem isn't where you get ideas, the problem is remembering them or knowing, like, where they go later. And so there'll be, like, commonplace books, but just of ideas instead of, other people's writing yeah i've been advised to do that multiple times but then i just end up with about three different books with it all in and then i don't know which ideas were it's my own fault for being disorganized i often think of like if i'm ever important enough for archivists to care about my papers i feel sorry for them because i have like i try to be systematic but things just quickly get chaotic yeah no system <laughs> so that's that's their problem though <laughs> it's not mine <laughs> Okay, so this is a good time for a break, and when we get back, we will read Mary Elizabeth Braddon's 1894 short story herself, which is one of her many short stories in a gothic tone. So just in time for Halloween weekend. (laughs) 
chapter one. And you intend to keep the orange grove for your own occupation, madam? Interrogates the lawyer gravely, with his downward-looking eyes completely hidden under bushy brows. Decidedly, answered my friend. Why, the Irish Grove is the very best part of my fortune. It seems almost a special providence, don't you know, Helen? Pursued Lothar, turning to me. That my dear old grandfather should have made himself a winter home in the south. There are the doctors, always teasing me about my weak chest. And there is a lonely house, and gardens, and orange groves waiting for me, in a climate invented on purpose for weak chests. I shall live every winter of my life there, Mr. Dean. The eminently respectable solicitor allowed a lapse of silence before he replied. It is not a lucky house, Miss Hammond. How not lucky? Your grandfather only lived to spend one winter in it. He was in very good health when we went there in December. A strong, sturdy old man. And when he sent for me in February to prepare the will which made you his sole heiress, I was shocked at the change in him. Broken, wasted, nerves shattered, a mere wreck. That was very sad, but surely you would not blame a lovely villa in Italy. Smiling down at a photograph in her lap, the picture of the typical southern villa. French windows, veranda, balconies, tower, terraces, garden and fountain. For the sudden break-up of an elderly constitution, I have heard that old men of very active habits and a hardy way of living, like my dear old grandfather, are apt to grow old suddenly. It was not merely that he was aged. He was mentally changed, nervous, restless, to all appearance unhappy. Well, didn't you ask him why? demanded Lothar, whose impetuous temper was beginning to revolt against the lawyer's solemnity. My physician hardly warranted my questioning Mr. Hammond on matters so purely personal. I saw the change and regretted it. Six weeks later, he was gone. Poor old grandpa. We were such friends when I was a little thing. And then they sent me to Germany with the governess. Poor little motherless mite. And then they packed me off to Pekin, where father was consul, and there he died. And then they sent me home again. And I was taken up by the smartest of all my aunts, and had my little plunge in society, and it always exceeded my allowance. It was up to my eyes in debt, for a girl. I suppose a man would hardly count such bills as I owe. And then Grandpa took it into his head to be pleased with me. And here I am, residuary legatee. I think that's what you call me, with an interrogative glance at the lawyer, who nodded his grave assent. And I am going to spend the winter months in my villa near Tagia. Only think of that, Helen. Tagia. Tagia. She syllabled the word slowly, ending with a little smack of her pretty lips as if it was something nice to eat, and she looked at me for sympathy. I haven't the faintest idea what you mean by tagia, said I. It sounds like an African word. Surely you have read Dr. Antonio? Surely I have not. Then I have done with you. There is a gulf between us. All that I know of the Liguria comes out of that delightful book. It taught me to pine for the shores of the Mediterranean when I was quite a little thing. And they show you Dr. Ruffini's house at Tagia, his actual house where he actually lived. You ought to consider, Miss Hammond, that the Riviera has changed a good deal since Ruffini's time, said the lawyer. Not that I have anything to say against the Riviera, per se. All I would advise is that you should winter in a more convenient locality than a romantic gorge between San Remo and Alassio. I would suggest Nice, for instance. Nice? Why, someone was saying only the other day that Nice is the chosen rendezvous of all the worst characters in Europe and America. Perhaps that's what makes it such an agreeable place said the lawyer. There are circles and circles in Nice. You could never breathe the same atmosphere as the bad characters. 
A huge, tiny place, exclaimed Lothar. Grandpa said it was not better than Brighton. Could anything be better than Brighton? asked I. Helen, you were always a Philistine. It was because of the horridness of Nice and Cannes that Grandpa bought a villa, four times too big for him, in this romantic spot. She kissed the white house in the photograph. She gloated over the wildness of the landscape, in which the villa stood out solitary, majestic. Palms, olives, cypress, a deep gorge cutting through the heart of the picture, mountains romantically remote, one white crest in the furthest distance, a foreground of tumbled crags and threads of running water. Is it really real? she asked suddenly. Not a photographer's painted background. They have such odious tricks, those photographers. One sits for one's picture in a tidy South Kensington studio, and they send one home smirking out of a primeval forest or in front of a stormy ocean. Is it real? Absolutely real. Very well, Mr. Dean. Then I'm going to establish myself there in the first week of December. And if you want to be very careful of me for Grandpa's sake, all you have to do is to find me a thoroughly respectable major domo who won't drink my wine or run away with my plate. My aunt will engage the rest of my people. My dear young lady, you may command any poor services of mine. But really now, is it not sheer perversity to choose a rambling house in a wild part of the country when your ample means would allow you to hire the prettiest bijou villa on the Riviera? I hate bijou houses. Always too small for anybody except some sour old maid who wants to overhear all her servants say about her. The spacious rambling house, the wild solitary landscape. Those are what I want, Mr. Dean. Get me a butler who won't cut my throat and I ask no more. Then, madam, I have done. A willful woman must have her way, even when it is a foolish way. Everything in life is foolish, Lothar answered lightly. The people who live haphazard come out just as well at the end as your ineffable wiseacres. And now that you know I am fixed as fate, that nothing you can say will unbend my own will, do like a darling old family lawyer, whom I have known ever since I began to know one face from another, do tell me why you object to the orange grove. Is it the drainage? There is no drainage. Then that's all right, checking it off on her forefinger. Is it the neighbours? Need I say that there are no neighbours? Pointing to the photograph. Number two, satisfactory. Is it the atmosphere? Lo, the villa is not. Damp it can hardly be, perched on the side of a hill. I believe the back rooms are damp. The hillside comes too near the windows. The back rooms are decidedly gloomy, and I believe damp. How many rooms are there in all? Nearer thirty than twenty. I repeat, it is a great rambling house, ever so much too large for you or any sensible young lady. The sensible young lady, no doubt, said Lothar, nodding impertinently at me. She likes a first floor in Regency Square, Brighton, with a little room under the tiles for her maid. I am not sensible, and I like lots of rooms. Rooms to roam about in, to furnish and unfurnish, and arrange and rearrange. Rooms to see ghosts in. And now, dearest Mr. Dean, I am going to pluck out the heart of your mystery. What kind of ghost is it that haunts the orange grove? I know there is a ghost. Who told you so? You. You've been telling me so for the last half hour. It is because of the ghost you don't want me to go to the Orange Grove. You might just as well be candid and tell me the whole story. I am not afraid of ghosts. In fact, I rather like the idea of having a ghost on my property. Wouldn't you, Helen, if you had property? No, I answered decisively. I hate ghosts. They are always associated with damp houses and bad drainage. I don't believe you would find a ghost in Brighton, not even if you advertised for one. Tell me all about the ghost, urged Lota. There is nothing to tell. Neither the people in the neighbourhood nor the servants of the house went so far as to say the orange grove was haunted. The utmost assertion was the time out of mind. The master or the mistress of that house had been miserable. Time out of mind? Why well, I thought Grandpa built the house twenty years ago. He only added the front which you see in the photograph. The back part of the house, the larger part, is three hundred years old. The place was a monkish hospital. 
the infirmary belonging to a Benedictine monastery in the neighbourhood, and to which the sick from other Benedictine houses were sent. Oh, that was ages and ages ago. You don't suppose that the ghosts of all the sick monks, who were so inconsiderate as to die in my house, haunt the rooms at the back? I say again, Miss Hammond, nobody has ever, to my knowledge, asserted that the house was haunted. Then it can't be haunted. If it were, the servants would have seen something. They're champion ghost seers. I am not a believer in ghosts, Miss Hammond, said the friendly old lawyer. But I own to a grain of superstition on one point. I can't help thinking there is such a thing as luck. I have seen such marked distinctions between the lucky and unlucky people I've met in my professional career. Now the Orange Grove has been an unlucky house for the last hundred years. Its bad luck is as old as its history. And why, in the name of all that's reasonable, should a beautiful young lady with all the world to choose from insist upon living at the Orange Grove? First, because it is my own house. Next, because I conceived a passion for it the moment I saw this photograph. And thirdly, perhaps because your opposition has given a zest to the whole thing. I shall establish myself there next December. And you must come out to me after Christmas, Helen. Your beloved Brighton is odious in February and March. Brighton is always delightful, answered I. But of course I shall be charmed to go to you. Chapter 2 An Earthly Paradise I was Loda's dearest friend, and she was mine. I had never seen anyone quite so pretty or quite so fascinating then. I have never seen anyone as pretty or as fascinating since. She was no Helen, no Cleopatra, no superbly modeled specimen of typical loveliness. She was only herself, like no one else, and to my mind better than everybody else a delicately wrought ethereal creature, all spirit and fire and impulse and affection, flinging herself with ardor into every pursuit, living intensely in the present, curiously reckless of the future, curiously forgetful of the past. When I parted with her at Charing Cross Station on the 1st of December, it was understood that I was to join her about the middle of January. One of my uncles was going to Italy at the time and was to escort me to Tagia, where I was to be met by my hostess. I was surprised, therefore, when a telegram arrived before Christmas, entreating me to go to her at once. I telegraphed back, Are you ill? Answer, Not ill, but I want you. My reply, Impossible, will go as arranged. I would have given much, as I told Loda in the letter that followed my last message, to have done what she wished, but family claims were too strong. A brother was to marry at the beginning of the year, and I should have been thought heartless had I shirked the ceremony. And there was the old idea of Christmas as a time for family gatherings. Had she been ill or unhappy, I would have cancelled every other claim and gone to her without one hour's delay, I told her. 
but I knew her a creature of caprices, and this was doubtless only one caprice among many. I knew that she was well cared for. She had a maiden aunt with her, the mildest and sweetest of spinsters, who absolutely adored her. She had her old nurse and slave, a West Indian half-caste, who had accompanied her from Pekin, and she had another and a dearer one still. Captain Holbrook of the Stonyshire Regiment was at San Remo. I had seen his name in a traveling note in the world, and I smiled as I read the announcement and thought how few of his acquaintance would know as well as I knew the magnet which attracted him to quit San Remo rather than go to Monte Carlo or Nice. I knew that he loved Violetta Hammond devotedly, and that she had played fast and loose with him, amused at his worship, accepting all his attentions in her light, happy manner, and giving no heed to the future. Yes, my pretty and succinct Loda was well cared for, ringed round with exceeding love, guarded as faithfully as a god in an Indian temple. I had no uneasiness about her, and I alighted in a very happy frame of mind at the quiet little station at Tagia, beside the tideless sea, in the dusk of a January evening. Loda was on the platform to welcome me, with Miss Elderson, her maternal aunt, in attendance upon her, the younger lady muffled in sealskin from head to foot. "'Why, Loda,' said I, when we had kissed, and laughed a little with eyes full of tears, "'you are wrapped up as if this were Russia, and to me the air feels balmier than an English April.' "'Oh, when one has a hundred-guinea coat, one may as well wear it,' she answered carelessly. I've bought this sealskin among my morning. Notice, chillier than she used to be. There was a landau with a pair of fine, strong horses waiting to carry us up to the villa. The road wound gently upward, past orange and lemon groves and silvery streamlets and hanging woods where velvet-dark cypresses rose tower-like amidst the silvery gray of the olives and so to about midway between the valley, where Tagia's antique palaces and church towers gleamed pale in the dusk, and the crest of the hill along which straggled the white houses of a village. The afterglow was rosy in the sky when a turn of the road brought our faces toward the summer-like sea, and in that lovely light every line in Loda's face was but too distinctly visible. Too distinctly for I saw the cruel change which three months had made in her fresh young beauty. She had left me in all the bloom of girlhood, gay, careless, brimming over with the joy of life and the new delight of that freedom of choice which wealth gives to a fatherless and motherless girl. To go where she liked, to do as she liked, roam the world over, choosing always the companions she loved, that had been Loda's dream of happiness, and if there had been some touch of self-love in her idea of bliss, there had been also a generous and affectionate heart, an unfailing kindness to those whom fate had not used so kindly. I saw her now a haggard, anxious-looking woman, the signs of worry written too plainly on the wan, pinched face, the lovely eyes larger but paler than of old, and the markings of nervous depression visible in the droop of the lips that had once been like Cupid's bow. I remembered Mr. Dean's endeavor to dissuade her from occupying her grandfather's villa on this lovely hill, and I began to detest the orange grove before I had seen it. I was prepared to find an abode of gloom, a house where the foul miasma from some neighboring swamp crept in at every window and hung gray and chill in every passage, a house whose too obvious unwholesomeness had conjured up images of terror, the spectral forms engendered of slackened nerves and sleepless nights. 
I made up my mind that if it were possible for a bold and energetic woman to influence Lotta Hammond, I would be that woman and whisk her off to Nice or Monte Carlo before she had time to consider what I was doing. There would be a capital pretext in the carnival. I would declare that I had set my heart upon seeing a carnival at Nice, and once there I would take care she never returned to the place that was killing her. I looked with a thrill of anger at the mild, sheep-faced aunt. How could she have been so blind as not to perceive the change in her niece? And Captain Holbrook, what a poor creature to call himself a lover and let the girl he loved perish before his eyes. I had time to think while the horses walked slowly up the hill road, for neither the aunt nor the niece had much to say. Each in her turn pointed out some feature in the view. Loda told me that she adored Tagia and doted on her villa and garden, and that was the utmost extent of our conversation in the journey of more than an hour. At last we drove round a sharpish curve, and on the hillside above us, looking down at us from a marble terrace, I saw the prettiest house I had ever seen in my life. A fairy palace, with lighted windows shining against the background of wooded hills. I could not see the colors of the flowers in the thickening gloom of night, but I could smell the scent of the roses and the fragrant-leaved geraniums that filled the vases on the terrace. Within and without, all was alike sparkling and lightsome, and so far as I could see on the night of my arrival, there was not a corner which could have accommodated a ghost. Loda told me that one of her first improvements had been to install the electric light. I love to think that this house is shining like a star when the people of Tagia look across the valley, she said. I told her that I had seen Captain Holbrook's name among the visitors at San Remo. He's staying at Tagia now, she said. He grew rather tired of San Remo. The desire to be near you had nothing to do with the change? You can ask him if you like, she answered, with something of her old insouciance. He's coming to dinner tonight. Does he spend his days and nights going up and down the hill? I asked. You will be able to see for yourself as to that. There is not much for anyone to do in Tagia. Captain Holbrook found me alone in the salon when he came. For, in spite of the disadvantages of arrival after a long journey, I was dressed before Loda. He was very friendly and seemed really glad to see me. Indeed, he lost no time in saying as much with a plainness of speech which was more friendly than flattering. I am heartily glad you have come, for now we shall be able to get Miss Hammond away from this depressing hole. Remembering that the house was perched upon the shoulders of a romantic hill with an outlook of surpassing loveliness, and looking round at the brilliant colouring of an Italian drawing-room steeped in soft clear light and redolent of roses and carnations, it seemed rather hard measure to hear of Loda's inheritance talked of as a depressing hole, but the cruel change in Loda herself was enough to justify the most unqualified dislike of the house in which the change had come to pass. Miss Elderson and her niece appeared before I could reply, and we went to dinner. The dining room was as bright and gracious of aspect as all the other rooms which I had seen, everything having been altered and improved to suit Loda's somewhat expensive tastes. The villa ought to be pretty, Miss Elderson murmured plaintively, for Loda's improvements have cost a fortune. Life is so short, we ought to make the best of it, said Loda gaily. We were full of gaiety, and there was the sound of talk and light laughter all through the dinner. But I felt that there was a forced note in our mirth, and my own heart was like lead. We all went back to the drawing room together. The windows were open to the moonlight, and the faint sighing of the night wind among the olive woods. Loda and her lover established themselves in front of the blazing pine logs, 
and Miss Elderson asked me if I would like a stroll on the terrace. There were fleecy white shawls lying about ready for casual excursions of this kind, and the good old lady wrapped one about my shoulders with motherly care. I followed her promptly, foreseeing that she was as anxious to talk confidentially with me as I was to talk to her. My eagerness anticipated her measured speech. You are unhappy about Loda, I asked. Very, very unhappy. But why haven't you taken her away from here? You must see that the place is killing her. Or perhaps the dreadful change in her may not strike you, who have been seeing her every day. It does strike me. The change is too palpable. I see it every morning. See her looking a little worse, a little worse every day, as if some dreadful disease were eating away her life. And yet, our good English doctor from San Remo says there is nothing the matter except a slight lung trouble, and this air is the very finest. The position of this house faultless for such a case as hers, high enough to be bracing, yet sheltered from all cold winds. He told me that we could take a no better place between Genoa and Marseilles. But is she to stop here and fade and die? There is some evil influence in this house. Mr. Dean said as much. Something horrible, uncanny, mysterious. My dear, my dear, can you, a good churchwoman, believe in any nonsense of that sort? There is nothing the matter with the house. I don't know what to believe, but I can see that my dearest friend is perishing bodily and mentally. The three months in which we have been parted have done the work of years of declining health, and she was warned against the house. She was warned. The sanitary engineer from Cannes has examined everything. Drainage is simply perfect. And your niece is dying, I said savagely and turned my back upon Miss Elderson. I gazed across the pale gray woods to the sapphire sea with eyes that scarcely saw the loveliness they looked upon. My heart was swelling with indignation against this feeble affection which would see the thing it loved vanishing off the earth and yet could not be moved to energetic action. dramatic conclusion to chapter two we are going to break here and come back with a second episode to finish off this chilling story thanks for listening guys thank you after the ball done by mr George
Hi there, listeners. It's future Courtney popping back in to make a few exciting announcements about things that have happened since we recorded. So first, and most exciting, I think, is that Eleanor has agreed to come on as a full-time co-host starting next season. So three cheers for more Eleanor. Yay! Eleanor has brought so much to the show, and I am looking forward to working with her more as we continue to explore lesser-known Victorian writers and their work. Second, and also very exciting, is that we have launched our official website. It is www.victorianscrubblers.com, and there you can learn more about the podcast. There are links to our Patreon and social media pages. We, of course, will be posting podcast episodes there, and you can subscribe to our podcast through that website. And also something I'm really excited about is our corrections page, where we will list revisions to flubs or inaccuracies as they come up in the podcast instead of retroactively going back and fixing those in the audio files, which would be a momentous task. So please keep an eye out there or we'll point you to it as need be if we have important revisions to make to anything that we've said in the podcast. And please just check out the website too. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Music for this podcast, courtesy of MuseOpen, www.museopen.org.